Today we're on the topic of step parents, mixed families, second marriages, all the different complications that come with different and changing family dynamics is going to be the topic of today's live stream. Welcome to Albertson and Davidson, the stand fight win live stream, real lawyers, real answers. I'm Keith Davidson. I'm Stuart Albertson. How you doing, Stuart? I'm doing good. How are you, Keith? I'm doing all right. You ready to talk about step parents? Let's talk about step parents. They're some of my favorite people. <laughs> so let's let's get started today. We're gonna go right to the question, ask and answer. And the reason we're gonna go to the questions today is that there is tons and tons of questions when it comes to what happens when your mom or dad marries somebody who's not your parent, and insanity ensues with the estate, with the property, and all of that. Uh, tons and tons of questions on that. And let me just say, starting out, that it's the men, it's the men's children who generally are going to end up losing here. And I'm not <laughs> being sexist. I'm just saying that has been my experience in these cases. And we're going to go through a bunch of questions today on this. But because of all of the mixed families and blended families we're seeing, uh, based on the divorce statistics over the last 30 years, we're seeing multiple marriages, multiple children from different sets of marriages, and it's causing some real issues in who gets when somebody passes away. Well, I think statistically you're right. I mean, it's not a sexist statement, but I think it's, I mean, I guess it could be taken sexist, but it's really not because in our experience, and we've handled a lot of step-parent cases, uh, the women tend to want to protect their kids and the men tend to want to protect their spouse. That's predominantly the way it works. And so whatever causes that, I don't know, but that's that tends to be the way things happen. I agree with that. So let's see what kind of questions we have on the topic of step-parents. Kayla, you're up. So our first question is, what if my dad left everything to my stepmom and then my stepmom left me out of her will? <laughs> Why don't you take a shot at this one? Well, sometimes the answer is really short, which is you're screwed. But <laughs> let's let's dive into that a little bit deeper rather than just leaving it there. So uh, your dad leaves everything to stepmom, and then stepmom doesn't give you anything. So the starting point and where that problem always goes wrong is with dad. Why did dad leave everything to stepmom? Because they had a long conversation. Let's let's deconstruct this. This is ten years ago. Right. Uh, they. This is a second marriage for dad. He's been married to this individual for ten years. Ten years ago. So now it's been a total of twenty years when he passes. And ten years ago, you know, he's he feels that he knows this person well. And by the way, this is probably not a bad person. The wife, not a bad right. person. She's she wants to make sure her retirement is secure. And then dad says to her, what? What are those magic words he says? He said, hey, hey, honey, I know you're going to do what for my children? You're going to take care of them. You're going to treat them right. Right. You're going to be fair. And what does she say? Of course. Yeah. Of course I'll treat them fair. Right. And she's, in her mind at that time, probably does believe she'll treat them fairly. But then in the intervening 10 years, there's a breakdown in the relationship between husband's children and the wife, perhaps, maybe at a Thanksgiving uh, dinner or Christmas dinner or something along those lines and and the relationship is strained to some extent dad doesn't change his will or his trust that gives everything to mom he passes everything does go outright to stepmom do the kids of dad have any rights vis-a-vis -vis their dad's estate it depends on what dad did and how he set it up and I think the problem is so many people think, well, that was my dad's property, and even though he gave it to stepmom, shouldn't I get something? Because that's fair. That's that's the fair result. It's my dad. 
Right. But the problem is, is that it all depends on how dad set it up. And so if dad truly gave everything to stepmom, um, and it could be the reverse too, if mom left everything to stepdad, then it's up to the spouse, the stepmom or stepdad to make up their own mind as to how these things are going to go. So now in your example, stepmom said, yes, I'm going to take care of the kids, but the time comes and stepmom goes, well, they've been very rude to me. They've been just awful. They've been asking me about getting their money before dad even died when he was still in the hospital or, you know, whatever the story is, right. something along those lines. Sure. And so why should they get anything? That's and right. So I'm not going to give them anything. And the children in that example are really powerless to do anything about it because of the way dad set it up. Now, there are ways where dad could set things up to protect the children by using a trust and holding things in trust and planning these things out properly. But in the cases that we see and we handle, which are all the problem cases, that doesn't happen. Not all the time, right? Yeah. Yeah. Even when, uh, and, and I think we have questions that'll go to that later on today, but uh, even when dad does do some of that appropriate planning on the trust side of things, uh, stepmom generally, or stepdad, whoever the surviving spouse is here, they generally don't follow the terms of that trust, and then you have to re-engineer that down the road. Right, yeah, right. Even if you have something in writing, they may not have done it right. right. But it's at least if you had something in writing, you have something you can enforce. Right. I think the question is... But why should I have to hire a lawyer if that's the case, Steve? <laughs> why should I have to hire a lawyer if the trust says that, that mom's supposed to give me one half the inheritance? You know... Sometimes people are given gifts that come with huge strings attached, <laughs> right? They're, they're troubled gifts. And I always, I kind of um, anal um, compare it to cancer, right? So if some, you have a cancer in your family and you're given a gift that has a cancer attached to it, you have to fight that cancer. And it's true just in the medical world. If somebody has a cancer, it's not fair, it's not right. They shouldn't have to pay for doctors and medical care to fight that cancer, but that's the reality. You do have to. And same here is that you got a gift. The gift has a cancer. If you're going to fight that cancer, then you have to hire a lawyer and pay money and, and get it done. And so it's very troubling, I think, for most people to, to realize that that's the type of gift that they were given because they never expected that. Because you expect to just get a gift from your parents. and, and The that's trust that. terms say I'm supposed to get it, and I'm not getting it. But in this case right here, the question we had, there is no trust. There are no trust terms. Dad left everything to stepmom. Stepmom now, if she wants to give it to any of dad's children, she, she can do that. That's a right. gift, though, but it's completely in her control. Right, yeah. She has 100% control uh, under that scenario, and that happens more often than you think. But there's not a... I think the key here is there's not an automatic right for a child to get some of dad's property just because they're a child of dad. That in and of itself isn't going to get you very far. Right. All right, Kayla, what's our next question? The next question is, my step-parent will not show me a copy of the trust or the will. Are they allowed to steal my inheritance? Well, nobody's allowed to steal inheritances. Um, I think that this is a good question to follow the last question because you're kind of in a gray area where dad has passed on. You don't know what the estate planning documents state. Uh, for example, what if everything does go to mom and now you get demanding with a stepmom and say, give me a copy of the trust. You're probably not gonna be in the trust very long. Whereas if you let sleeping dogs lie, maybe 
stepmom passes away 10 years from now and she doesn't change anything in the trust and you in fact get a gift. And so you're in a very, you have to make a decision here. Do you want the information or do you want to wait and just see how things shake out after stepmom dies? The way I would view that is, well, instead of me answering the question, how would you view that? I mean, I think being left in the dark is one of the toughest things that you're ever going to confront in trust and will situations. So if you're a child and you just don't know because the step parent won't give you a copy of the document, that's the most frustrating position to be in because of what you just said, which is you don't know if you have rights. If you don't have rights, do you enforce the rights? Do you not enforce the rights? You don't know. You're in the dark. The one thing I'll say is that, number one, it's not uncommon for beneficiaries to be in the dark. So if you feel like you're in the dark and you don't know, you're not alone. A lot of people are in that same position. Uh, what do you do with it? Man, that's a very personal question. I think everybody's going to have a different answer. Well, let me, let, me, let me ask you this. If mom, stepmom has stage four ovarian cancer, and I'm not trying to make light of this, uh, but she's, she's, gonna, she's sick and she's going to die in a year or less, do you make any hay about this at all? Probably not because you'd, I think you're right. I think you don't want to rock the boat. You don't want to be in a position where you're taking court action while mom, uh, stepmom is homesick. And then they're going to say, well, that's, you know, she changed the terms of the trust to disinherit you because you were suing her. Of course she did. Okay. And if I change the facts on you and dad was in his 80s and stepmom was in her 30s, uh, and stepmom as healthy as can be, uh, do you want to seek to see if there's perhaps some type of trust planning that made sure that there was a portion set aside for you and your, your siblings? I'd be more inclined to under that scenario because you don't know how long it's going to go on. And I think the problem, too, is people will say, well, don't I have a right to see a copy of the trust? Once my dad dies, do I have a right to see a copy yep, of the trust? You sure do. And why won't they just give it to me then? Well, for various reasons. It could be control. It could be ignorance. Uh, it could be a lot of reasons. Some people are offended by you asking them for a copy of the trust. But it's one of those things where you're either going to get some really good news yeah. or you're going to get some really bad news. And you just don't know. And so that's where I was asking you, you know, how long is stepmom? How long do you think stepmom's going to live? I think that kind of will dictate how much your risk you're willing to take right. on asking for that information. Right. So there definitely is a risk for going in and asking. Because if you, like you said, if the trust is completely revocable, it can be changed at any time by stepmom and you rock the boat. Oops. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. That, could, that could be an expensive yeah. mistake. Yeah, that's like a boom, boom moment, you know? That's <laughs> one of know those what moments. That means, but I think what you're getting at is, is that that's a mistake. <laughs> We all make mistakes. But we all a, make But that's a costly one. <laughs> we make costly mistakes at times, yes, too. That's true. That's true. All right. No more inside jokes. All right, Kayla, what's our next question? Okay. The next question is, my stepfather just passed away, and my mother died a few years ago. There are assets, but no will. Do I have any rights? Boy, so stepdad just passed away. Mom died a few years ago, so that means mom died first. Mm -hmm. And um, there are assets, but no will. Do I have any rights? And I, my question here before you start, Keith, is is there no will for the stepfather or there's no will for the mom or the stepfather? Well, let's take it in steps. So let's say, the, let's say mom had a will, but her will left it to stepfather, and then stepfather dies without a will. Kids are done. Mom's, Mom's kids, are, kids done. are done, yeah, yeah, because they're not related by blood. So you're going to go under the intestate statute, and you got some big problems on your hands. Right. Now let's say mom died without a will. So mom dies first without a will. That, then it depends on how many kids she has versus stepdad, who apparently owns everything with her own community property. Let's presume that. 
that's the other thing is is it community or is it separate so the intestate distribution of community property is it all goes to the surviving spouse right 100 percent. correct but separate property is different it goes half to the surviving spouse if there's only one child of the of mom and one third to the surviving spouse if there's two or more children of mom i think it's good for you i mean hearing that for the first time i remember i was confused by that why don't you walk through that one more time so let's say we have mom here and she uh, dies and she has some separate property and she has some community property but no will okay. and she's got two children of her own so what happens there all right so under that scenario 100 percent of the community property will pass from mom to her spouse kids will not get a dime of that that's just the way it works for the separate property because there's two kids one-third of the separate property will pass the spouse, two-thirds will go out to the kids. Okay, and let's just, because we throw these terms around all the time and we're comfortable with them, just generally community property versus separate property, how do we characterize those? And generally speaking, community property is anything acquired during the marriage. And then there's all sorts of different exceptions and rules, but that's what it is. So, anything you acquire during your marriage. So if mom had owned an apartment complex before she got into the marriage, and it was an apartment complex owned outright worth, let's just call it $2 million, and then she gets married, and she and stepdad buy a home for $2 million, and that gets paid off during the marriage, then which one of those is separate, which one of those is community, and how would those numbers be distributed? So the, pre the beginning presumption before you do any other analysis is that the apartment is separate property because it was acquired before marriage, and the home would be community property because it was acquired during marriage. And then we have all these arguments about where did the funds come from and was there mixing of assets and all that nonsense. But by and large, the apartments would be separate and the home would be community. That, and so that the, would be the starting point. So the apartment complex would go to the two children of mom. Two-thirds. Two-thirds would go? Of the apartment complex would go to the kids. One-third of the apartment complex would go to spouse. And that's a separate property analysis. Right. And then community property analysis, it sounds like mom's kids are going to be out of luck there. Yeah, entire home goes to stepdad. So that's why, this is why planning is so important. If people are just expecting that the intestate statute is going to save the day, they're going to be very disappointed because the intestate statute has all sorts of unintended consequences because it just works by operation of law. Right. It, there's no fairness. There's no intent. It doesn't matter what mom intended. That's the plan you're going to get. Right. So it's, it's, it can be dangerous. All right, Kayla. Next question is, I'm married for the second time and we both have children from previous marriages. Whose children get the house when my spouse dies? Well, we've been talking a little bit about that back and forth. And so again, we've got uh, two, I've uh, got a mom, mom and a dad and they both have children. So in this case, children both have a step parent on the other side and then they have their blood parents. And so this is the problem. Who dies first? Right. And what estate planning do you have in place? Those are really the analyses that you have to go through. So if, if mom dies first, we know dad's the survivor. If dad dies first, then mom's the survivor. And then the question is, is there any estate planning documents that we're going to look at that are going to dictate how the assets are to be passed? Or are we going to be looking at the intestacy statute? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it depends on what the planning is. And I think who died first wins, wins the day. In most cases, you're right. In most cases, yeah. whoever dies first yeah. is probably going to lose, and their kids are going to lose, and whoever lives to lives on them and their kids are going to win. Right. But you remember we had a case a long time ago, where a spouse, married couple, they they had a kid from a from their current marriage, but there was kids from a prior marriage, 
And the spouse thought the husband was going to die first, so she took the property out of a trust and put it in joint tenancy. Right. Because she thought she was going to get 100% of it when yeah. Dad died. Right. And he, he was clearly going to die first, and then she was going to give it to her one son. Right. Well, lo and behold, after she did that, she died. Right. <laughs> unexpectedly. And so it all went to Dad, and then the son of Mom uh, sued because right. he didn't want Dad giving it to his other kids. Right. And so these things can backfire on you, too, if you're not... Again, that, that goes back to good planning, though. I mean, if you're planning by putting things in joint tenancy and you think that that's going to work, that can backfire on you, too. Right. And, and while we don't do planning at this firm, it seems to me that, I mean, let's take me, for example. I'm 45. Let's say that I meet somebody and they've got uh, two or three kids and I have my own son, right? And I get married. Generally, what's going to happen to my son in that situation? Well, he's probably going to lose out on your some portion of your estate, if not all of it. Right. And, and so at that point in time, what's a way that I can plan if I want to be proactive so that I do take care of my spouse, who I'm supposed to be dedicated to? I think that's a, a reasonable thing to do. I think both spouses should help each other out because neither one knows who's going to die first. Also, the spouse wants to, wants to take care of her family. If you're using me as an example, I want to take care of my son. So how can we meet all of those needs? Well, the first thing I'm going to say is something that nobody ever finds all that fun to do, which is premarital agreement. Okay. That'd probably be your first defense. If you had a premarital agreement, you can plan these things out and whatever is separate remains separate and you don't have any unintended consequences. The other thing you can do is just a really good trust planning. So you can either have your own separate property trust or you can have a joint trust with your spouse or you can have both. But planning these things out is very important if you hope to get the result that you're looking for, which is you want to make sure your son gets what, what he's entitled to in your mind. What about life insurance? How could that be used perhaps to uh, you know, resolve some of these issues where people are competing for, the, for a, a smaller pool of assets? Yeah, life insurance is great because it provides cash when somebody dies, and then that cash can be used to make gifts, to pay tax, uh, to be able to allocate assets so you don't have to sell something. So maybe you're, you want your son to get a house but you know the other kids of your spouse will be, get cash from the life insurance to offset the value of the house. It can be a very effective way to develop a good plan so that everybody f walks away feeling like they got what they're supposed to. So what I'm hearing you say is, look, have those hard conversations right up front right. and you'll resolve a lot of problems down in the future. Uh, if you just choose to ignore them or just assume that you know everything's gonna be utopian in the future, you're taking risks there because it may not work out the way you think. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, a lot of people think, well, it's not my problem, it's my kid's problem, I'll be dead and gone. Well, you don't know how true that is. You really are giving a problem to your kids if you're not gonna plan this stuff out, and it's, it's not pleasant. You're also giving a problem to your spouse. So if you really wanna leave your spouse and your kids in the worst possible situation, then don't plan. Right. And then, you know, they'll be coming to see people like us well, it actually behooves us if people don't plan. but Yeah, uh, that's right. It yeah. doesn't seem that we need to actually promote that because it just naturally happens. Yeah, so. I, for years I used to do seminars trying to teach people how to do planning, and there was so much resistance. People would be like, well, why should I do this, and it costs money. And, and I finally gave up, and I just started saying, you know what, don't do any planning at all. Lawyers make way more money when you don't <laughs> plan, and paying lawyers a lot of money is a good and noble thing that everybody should should be proud to do. So there you have it. 
Even better than that is uh, what are these uh, sites called? What is this Robert Shapiro site uh, where you can log in and create your own trust? Yeah, your like LegalZoom. LegalZoom. And, yeah. and then we see people screwing that up as well. So Yeah, because the wording's wrong or they yeah. don't set them up properly. Yeah, it's, it's a nightmare. Yeah. Well, I recently went in to see my knee surgeon, and I told him I'm going to do the surgery. <laughs> Is that what told you him did? I, I told him I, goog I Googled it. I figured it on, out. You went on Dr. Zoom? Yeah, I went on Dr. Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I got this. I got this. <laughs> yeah. Kayla, save us from our Nonsense. attempt at humor, yeah. yes. Okay. The next question is, my dad was married to my mom much longer than he was married to my stepmom. Don't I have more rights than she does? Meaning the stepmom. So I understood this, Keith, as that you have a son here, and he's saying, hey, I'm the product of, of my mom and dad who are married for a very long time, let's call it 40 years. Right. Okay, then mom passes away, presumably, or is divorced and gone, and dad remarries uh, somebody and is married to them for just a few short years, and then dad passes away. What are my rights as an heir of my parents? Yeah, the, the child does not have necessarily a superior rights to the spouse, even though the spouse wasn't married that long. And again, it goes back to what did dad do? What planning did he have in place? Did he leave everything? If, if dad didn't have planning or he left everything to spouse, then she's gonna have all the rights and the kids are, are, are out of luck. So just because uh, your parent was married to your mom for 50 years and then second wife was only married for a few years, it really doesn't help things one way or the other. One thing I'm starting to pick up from these line of cases is that fairness, which is a, a concept that the probate court can take into consideration, is that favorable to somebody in these line of cases or is the black letter law more likely gonna be favorable? Yeah, that's the problem is these cases are rarely fair. And I think what this question is getting to is, I knew my dad for 50 years, you know, he was my dad, he was married to my mom for a long, long time, and then some interloper comes in, they're only married for a couple of years, and now she gets everything that's not fair. But the problem is, is that in estate law, trust and will law, and the way assets transfer, we don't really care about overall fairness. The law is not concerned about it. The court's not concerned about it, really. What we're concerned about is, well, what did he do? And we assume that whatever dad did, he intended to do. That's the assumption the law makes. So if dad put uh, an investment account in joint tenancy with himself and his new spouse, it's gonna pass to her under joint tenancy law, and the law is gonna assume that, well, that's what dad wanted. That's why he did it that way. And so that's a bad assumption, and it's an unfair assumption, but it's the legal assumption, right? Well, well let me ask you this. What if uh, there's a will here, and it's handwritten by dad, and it's handwritten two months before he passes, and he gives everything to his new bride, right? and uh, signs off on it? Uh, you know, what, what are the arguments that the son, in this case, can make, if any, at the time of trial? Well, you're stuck with making arguments like a lack of capacity, undue influence, you know, those sorts of things. There could be others. Um, but those are tough arguments because you have to prove them. And so you, the son has the burden of proving that any of those things are true. And trying to prove undue influence of a spouse is particularly difficult just because they're married. People kind of assume that spouses influence each other. Uh, but there is case law, you know, uh, Lentz versus Lentz being the big one. Fiduciary obligations. That spouses have fiduciary obligations and you can prove an unfairness. So, I mean, it's possible that you might be able to prove undue influence, but it's not all that likely. What we're, 
what are your thoughts? How would a sun attack something like that? Well, what we're seeing is that the sun attacks based on the fairness, and that's because right. that's what they have. And so we've had several trials that we've recently been a part of where we're defending a will under these circumstances where it's it, maybe the will doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it's a will and it's signed, it's valid. Maybe it has the two witnesses, maybe it's a holographic will. And what we've seen the opposing side argue is, but they have such a good relationship. The son has such a good relationship with his father. His father would have never done this. But is that evidence that the will is not valid? No, and that's the thing is that they don't, wills don't need to be fair. They don't need to make sense. Uh, they just have to be valid in the eyes of the law, meaning that the person who created it was of sound mind, they signed it, and that's what they wanted to do. So yeah, you could, you could go along thinking you want to leave everything to your son, but then a month before your death, if you're of sound mind, you can say, you know what, I'm going to leave it all to this charity. Yeah. And well, you know, everybody might think that's unfair. Or my law partner. That would be fair. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Kayla. Kayla's rolling her eyes, just for the record. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The next question is, can my stepmom deplete my inheritance before I receive anything? So that's, there's two different aspects to that. One is, <clears throat> let's say you did, let's say dad did do proper planning and dad actually did create a trust where assets, we call it a bypass trust or a marital trust where these assets are held for the benefit of stepmom during her lifetime and then when she passes, it passes out to dad's kids. That would be some good planning. And, but stepmom's also a trustee of that bypass trust and she's making distributions out of the bypass trust for anything she wants, vacations, new cars, uh, gifts to friends, and get, usually gifts to her kids is what's happening, right? That's right. So what rights does dad's children have under that scenario? Well, they might have significant rights because generally speaking in that type of planning, you have to look to the terms of the trust, but generally speaking, those trust terms say that mom's survivor's trust, her portion of the estate, she's gonna have to look to that first and foremost for her, for her standard of living. She can come over here and invade the bypass trust, we call it, under the trust terms. And it's normally based on a HEM standard, which is a health, maintenance, education, and support standard, which it can still be in a, a large amount that comes out, uh, also, the trust terms generally are going to give mom all the income every single year off the earnings of the bypass trust. And that'll be paid usually in four installments. It can be more. It can be one installment a year. But generally, she's going to get all of that. So the question here is, can she deplete the inheritance? To an extent, yes, she can. And again, picking on mom here because mom's normally the survivor. With, uh, we could, it could Statistically, easily, that's true. Yeah, yeah, it easily could be dad being the survivor. Right. And by the way, men and women who survive these in these cases, they, they react the same way. So it's human nature. So right. we don't mean to be pejorative here and, and just beating up on mom. But mom, here, stepmom, is going to be able to look to the terms of the bypass trust. And whatever those terms are, she can maximize those terms. And yeah, she can deplete, quote unquote, deplete the part of the bypass trust uh, for that. But that's why if you really are in a blended family situation and mom does have that survivor's trust, what can dad put in that survivor's trust along with mom's consent at the time that the trust created to make sure that she's using the assets there before she's depleting the assets of the bypass trust? Well, you want a provision in the bypass trust that says that. It says that you have to use the assets out of the survivor's trust first. So that would be helpful. You may want to think about having somebody other than the stepmom be trustee of the bypass trust so that there's at least 
And this is this gets to, I mean, on the one hand, stepmom definitely likes to be in control of the money that's for her benefit, and I get that. But sometimes just having an independent trustee gives the perception of objectivity, even if the result's the same. So maybe the objective trustee is making the same distributions that the surviving spouse would, and maybe they're all proper distributions. Let's just assume they are. But because they're being done by a, a third person, all of a sudden it looks appropriate. Whereas if stepmom took those same reactions, everything she does is suspect and, and you know, you don't like what she's doing and all that. So it can be helpful to name a, an independent trustee, I think, in those situations, but you have to you have to choose wisely. You don't want just anybody. Right. By the way, I, when, when I did planning, when I first started planning before we became Albertson and Davidson, I remember I had a conversation with a surviving spouse. She had survived her husband of, oh, it was 10, 15 years, something like that. And there was a bypass trust provision, and it required one half the community and all the separate property, the husband, to go into this bypass trust. Try explaining that to <laughs> the surviving spouse right. that you're going to have to take one half the community property and put it in this trust that's locked away from you for the most part. They don't care that they're going to get the income off of that. Right. And then also tell them all the separate property is also going into that bypass trust. It's not a pleasant conversation to have. No, and it's shocking. You know, it's funny because people sign these trusts. They should know that when they create the trust. It's right there, right? And it's been explained to them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. These are these are difficult issues. And I think, again, this goes back to what something you said earlier, and that is, folks, take some time to hire a lawyer for a, a premarital agreement analysis. You don't have to enter into one if you don't want to, but at least do the analysis, especially in a blended family situation. And then also make sure that you're covering all these issues in a trust plan and that's where life insurance can come in to make right. sure that people get some assets at the end. It can be quite expensive though, uh, life insurance on somebody like me even, you know, at 45 years of age, you go in, it's not gonna be cheap like it was when you were in your 20s. You know, the life insurance is a really good point too because what that uh, really uh, brings to my mind is, it's not all about trust. So you talk to people about estate planning. You should do estate planning. And what you hear back is, oh, I already have a trust that's taken care of. Right. Well, a trust is not an estate plan. It's a tool that you use as part of your estate plan, but it's not a plan in and of itself. There That's could right. be other aspects to that. That's right. And so a trust is like a hammer. So if I'm building, if, if you tell me, you know, you need a house, and I said, oh, I don't need a house, I have a hammer. Well, a hammer's not a house. Right. A hammer's a tool you use to build a house. Right. Not anymore, now you use nail guns, but same, <laughs> same difference. So just because you have a trust or will, your job's not done. Right. You need to think about the overall perspective of what you're doing, how it's all going to work, if it all works together and coordinates. Those are the tougher issues. And that's where, if you're not careful, you're going to run into some big problems. Yep. All right, Kayla, what's next? So we had a question earlier about whether the stepmom or surviving stepparent is required to give you a copy of the trust. We had a question come through Facebook about whether the stepparent is required to give you an accounting. Ooh. So that's good. That's a, that's, a, that's a fun one. So I guess let's, let's make sure we, everyone's on the same page here. So dad has died. Right. Stepmom is refused to give a copy of the trust at this point in time. And then the question is, well, I need an accounting to see what the assets are. Naturally. Okay, so sense. so how do we attack, how do we crack this nut? You're, we're going to go back to what we've been talking about before, which is what's the plan? How was it planned out? So if dad gave everything to stepmom and it's just hers outright, then no, you're not going to get an accounting. You're not. There's no mechanism, there's no rights to an accounting under that scenario. 
if it's in a trust and the trust is completely revocable by stepmom, there's no bypass trust or anything like that, no, you're not going to be entitled to an accounting. If the, when the trust is revocable, any portion of the trust that's revocable, you're not going to get an accounting as a child. Okay, but let's say there's a trust and stepdad or dad before he passed away made sure to include mandatory funding of a bypass trust right. where one half his community property would go into that trust and all of his separate property would go into that trust. And then there would be a survivor's trust created for the for stepmom. Her one half community go, would go in there and presumably any uh, separate property she has goes in there as well. So now you're getting to a point where you are have some accounting rights. Right, and let's say that we do go ahead and take that risky decision and say, no, we're gonna compel a copy of the trust in this case. You compel a copy of the trust and thankfully you see this mandatory bypass trust, which is good news for your client can you now compel an accounting of stepmom? Yes, so you can compel an accounting of the irrevocable bypass trust portion because once it becomes irrevocable, then the surviving or the uh, the beneficiaries, even though you're not vested yet. Well, let me let me take a step back. Technically speaking, the only people who are by right entitled to an accounting are the current beneficiaries. So if the spouse is the income and principal right now beneficiary then the kids aren't technically entitled to an accounting, but they're entitled to all of the information, which essentially is, it's, it'll get you to the same location as an accounting. Uh, the kids also can request from the court an accounting, and more often than not, the court's gonna order an accounting. That's right. So if the, from a practical perspective, can I get an accounting of the bypass trust if it's irrevocable? Yes, yes, and if, even if you can't get an accounting, you can get all the financial information, it's the next best thing. So you'll be able to determine what was funded into that bypass trust, when it was funded, what the assets consist of, and what happens to the assets after they're in the bypass trust. So all of that could be accomplished, but probably not voluntarily. If you're dealing with somebody who's just being completely difficult and doesn't want to talk to you, then there's a good chance you're heading to court to make all that happen. All right, so let's say that uh, you, you did get a copy of the trust terms. There is a mandatory funding in the bypass trust. You even get a uh, stepmom to give an accounting which she also lets you know she just disinherited you from her survivor's trust. Right. But okay, but now so you, you know you've locked in whatever it is you have, your rights are in the inheritance of the bypass trust. And let's say that stepmom is relatively young. She's maybe 50, 55, somewhere in there. She's still gonna live for the next 20, 25, 30 years. And let's say that you're in your 50s too. You're about the same age as, <laughs> as, as your stepmom. Is there a way to have everyone come to the table and do some horse trading here, or do we have to wait until stepmom dies, which the bypass trust is more than likely going to require, right? You're not going to get anything from the bypass trust until stepmom passes away. Right. Is there a way that maybe everyone can figure out a way to get some money in this situation? In our experience, yes. So legally speaking, no. There's no absolute, there's no right for the children to get something now. but. When you start going down the road of, okay, fine, stepmom, I want an accounting. I want to know what was allocated. I want to know how you're managing it. I want to know if you invested it properly because, you know, maybe not and probably not in, in a majority of cases. You're asking some very tough questions that come with some very tough liability if, if the answers are wrong. And that's when you get into a situation where you can start saying, tell you what, rather than us going down this road and nitpicking everything you do, we can value these things. We can actually value a life expectancy. We use the IRS tax tables. You put a money factor on it. It's all right there. And, and I can tell you today uh, what the present value of, the, of mom, stepmom's life estate is worth. And you could slice that off, give that to her, give the rest to the kids, and just be done with this and separate the parties so that they're not fighting for the next 20 years. Okay, and how is a court 
how is a court in California going to review the request of trust beneficiaries if they petition the court and say, hey, we'd like to basically, we want to in uh, this trust as far as the bypass trust goes and what we've agreed is we're going to carve out a certain amount and give it to mom and mom's going to let us have the rest and everyone's going to move on their merry way. How is a court likely to receive that? Practically speaking, in our experience, courts usually have no problem with that, especially if you're settling a litigation and this is the settlement result. So if you're fighting over something and, and you come to a settlement, that's one avenue where the courts can be very receptive to that. Uh, there's also provisions under the probate code where you can modify an irrevocable trust. There's changed circumstances. There's a provision that says you can terminate trust if all the beneficiaries agree. Uh, there's various ways to go to go about it. But basically what you're doing in court is we're going to fight this out for a very long time or we can settle it and have a result where everybody walks away and they don't have to fight about it anymore. The court's going to be pretty receptive to that. Would you agree? I, that's been our experience, yes. Yeah. yeah. And, but I, and that's something you would want a court confirmation on, in my opinion. We want to get, yes. a, we want to get a, uh, the court to review this, make sure you know, everything looks right, and then give us a court order on it. And, yes. and that way there's nobody else that's going to come back later on and try to say that you know, they, somehow they weren't notified or whatever the case may be. Yeah, you want to make sure that it's all buttoned up with a court order. And plus you may have to because a lot of times the assets might be in a, in a, in a bank account or with a life insurance company. And they may refuse to release the assets until you have a court order, right. which is what you can do with the settlement. Yep. All right, Miss Kayla. All right, this is our last question today. What if my step-parent changed my mom or dad's will or trust right before my parent passed away? Well, this really is no different from if anybody else changed it, right? I mean, if stepmom or dad, let's say a week before your dad dies, stepmom comes in, and originally it was going to go to the, you know, you have two siblings, so it's going to go to the three of you equally, and now it goes 100% to stepmom. Um, what What's popping into your mind in terms of how you would address that? Well, it's undue influence for certain, but I, I think I have a little different view of that uh, than you do. And I don't, I, I think the reason is, is because it's coming from the wife or the husband in this case. And I think courts give a little bit of deference to the wife or the husband compared to a sibling that, that exercises undue influence or some right. third party, a neighbor, a caregiver. I think for some reason, spouses are in a special place. And that's why these are particularly difficult cases yeah. to prove from an undue influence standpoint. No, I think I would agree with that. I think it is a little bit harder to prove undue influence of a spouse, even, even if it's done a week before death, because they're spouses. And you know, I think you're right. Number one, I think uh, most judges and most courts are going to give some deference to a spouse. And right. number two, spouses have a duty to um, support one another. And I think a lot of courts are not going to look kindly on a spouse being kicked out in the street if all the assets are going to go away. Well, let's be honest here. Number three, I would add to that, is spouses impliedly consent to unduly influence each other. <laughs> um, and I, I, is that I, a jaded I, view of marriage? Well, maybe. But uh, I, I do think that as long as there's capacity, I think when you're partnering up with somebody uh, in that fashion, you're marrying somebody or becoming their, their domestic partner, whatever the case may be, you're, you're doing something above and beyond what you're required to do. And I think the court's going to look at that and say, that was your choice, right. so we're going to try to follow that to the best of our ability. Right. Now, that's the funny thing is that what we're saying is not necessarily the legal standard, but it is the persuasive standard. And, you know, in order to win a, a will or trust contest, you have to persuade a judge 
to overturn something that the law presumes is valid. Correct. You have a burden, and if you don't meet that burden, so it's it's a persuasive problem. Um, although it's not impossible. I mean, there's cer we've certainly had cases. I can think of a handful of cases where we've been successful in going after a very bad step parent, but. Those were pretty egregious cases. They are, you know, where um, in fact we had one where the the lady married dad, but she was technically still married to somebody else, which apparently is illegal. Uh, you can't yeah. be married to more than one person no, at a time. Oh, not, right. uh, not not in California. Okay, uh, this is not, not yet. This is in Arkansas. Not so. yet. <laughs> hey, no, oh, hey, 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 we love Arkansas, <laughs> but it's still kind of funny. Um, but the problem it would is, be Louisiana. Yeah, right. Yeah. The, Sorry, uh, Louisiana. <laughs> But there are some egregious cases where you, you might be able to gain some traction with those arguments, but they, they tend to be the tougher ones, for sure. Yeah. Well, on that note. Do you have any other questions, Kayla? Are there any other states we can offend? All right, there's one other. Yeah, yeah, let's go through them. Uh, let's go through uh, our next segment, which is our opinion. And there's one other issue that I want to address that has to do with this topic. And it's an issue that you can find and one of my favorite books, Stand, Fight, Win, written by Keith Davidson and Stuart Albertson. I know those guys. And so in this book, we talk about various hypotheticals. And one of the hypotheticals have to do with a family business where you have a step-parent who um, unwittingly or unknowingly between the parties ends up as being a person who receives either a third or maybe all of this business because there wasn't proper planning done. And it brings up a very specific issue that a lot of people don't know about, and that's called omitted spouse. So if you create a trust or a will on one date, and then after that you get married, your new spouse becomes an omitted spouse and has rights, inheritance rights, even if the trust or will that you created doesn't give them anything. Okay. Right? So let's go through uh, an example. All right. So let's say I create a will and in my will, I say I leave all of my assets to my two sons. Okay. Let's say a year later, I get married, and I don't change my will, don't do anything about it, and then a year after I get married, I die. Okay. What is my spouse, and let's say all everything I have is separate property. So I wasn't married long enough, I didn't acquire anything during the marriage, it's all separate property. So my sons see the will, says, oh, the will says we get everything, doesn't name the spouse, so my sons will be thinking the spouse must get nothing. What do you, what do you think? So the wife is going to step forward here and say, no, I was omitted because this was an estate plan that was created prior to marriage. And since I'm an omitted spouse, I have a claim to the estate assets. And it's an intestate claim. So you, the spouse would get an intestate share just as if there were no will at all, even though there is a will. And so for separate property, since I have two sons, she'd get a third. It gets worse if I have community property. So if I had a will before I was married, everything goes to my sons. I get married, I acquire a bunch of property during the marriage, it's community property, and then I die, uh, again, the spouse would be an omitted spouse. Her intestate share of community is 100% of the community. She takes everything, and the kids get nothing. Right. And I think that's a really surprising result. I've talked to people who are in that unfortunate position before, and they just can't wrap their heads around, how could that be possible? I mean, if you create a will leaving everything to your son, how is it possible that's not what we're going to follow. Right. And I guess the presumption is, and I don't know if it's a good presumption or not, but the presumption is, is that you didn't have the opportunity to update your will after your marriage. And so now let's change the facts up a little bit. Let's say that the will 
is drafted a day after you got married and it leaves everything to your sons, how would the analysis work then? Then it's not an omitted spouse. Then the presumption is you knew you were married, you just got married. If you left a will leaving everything, you know, your share of everything to your sons, you must have done that knowing that you'd be excluding your spouse. And so the separate property, all the separate property goes to your sons under that scenario. Yes. And one half of your community property goes to your sons under that scenario. That's right. Okay, so that's, I mean, think about just the timing is the issue there. And I think you're right. I think people are surprised by that because I, I can already hear what a client would say. Well, I already did my state plan. Right. And now I'm getting married. Oh, yeah, I already took care of that. Yeah, my kids are getting everything. That's what my trust or will says. Why do I need to change it? And I don't remember uh, in the book, I think that this was a case that we had worked in the past, and it was a family business that the sons were going to continue to run. Right. And here mom is like, oh, yeah, you know, give me what I'm due. Yeah, stepmom says, hey, I'm entitled to something here because there wasn't a, a, a subsequent will done. And I guess the policy... Uh, behind this omitted spouse rule is if somebody creates a will and they later get married, the law presumes that that person certainly would have left something to their spouse had they updated their will. Right. And because they didn't update their will, we're going to make an assumption, a very heavy assumption, that the spouse gets something. Now, there's two things you can do to make sure that omitted spouse doesn't affect your estate. One is you can just create a new estate plan uh, after you're married. Does an amendment work? An amendment does work. Okay. So you can do an amendment. You can also do an amendment right before you're married, but you can reference the marriage. So as long as you say, hey, I'm about to get married, but I want this trust or this will to apply even after I'm married, and I do not want my spouse or my future spouse to receive any of my share of the estate, then you're fine. I'm and why you're marrying this person, I have no idea, but go ahead. <laughs> That's right. I mean, if, you're not, <laughs> if you don't want them to have anything after you're gone, I'm not sure why you're marrying them, but okay. I mean, yeah, who am I to question uh, the ways of love? Yes, but, right. Uh, but it, it is interesting that it's a very, very important. This goes back to planning again. Not only is it important that you plan and do these things properly, but it's important that you update it and change it with major life changes. And I think that's the, the point here. But omitted spouse, I actually had a case, it's a while ago now, about eight years ago, where um, it was actually a, an omitted child, which it's the same scenario. You create a will, you have a child, and you don't update your will. The child's gonna get an intestate share. And it was the first time I've ever been able to use that to our client's benefit, because he was an omitted child, and we did get him a share of the estate. And it's such a strong argument because it's just a right under the law and there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. That's right. just the way it is. Right. And so um, it can really come back to bite the children in the rear if they're not careful. And, and that's something that you really have to watch out for. Once again, this all comes back to, and we've been talking about it all day, is do the planning. Do, take the time to do the planning. It's going to be much less expensive. It's also going to be less time intensive to do it right, to get it set up. And then like you say, when major life changes do take place, marriages, having children, starting a business, acquiring assets uh, that are significant in value, those are the times where you're gonna want to just run it past your estate planner and say, how does this impact things? Right. And then your estate planner can let you know what, they, what you need to do. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then for those people who don't do planning, if you're going to call you know, somebody like us, our law firm, and say, do I have rights in this situation? It's not an easy question to answer. There's a lot that we have to dig into before we can figure out, number one, what your rights even potentially are, and then number two, how to enforce those rights. So it's not a black and white issue. It's not a quick question. It's a complicated mess, usually, 
that has to be unwound. So it's not it's not easy to attack. One last comment I'll have, and that is, I don't know what it is, it's 80% of us will not inherit a whole lot from our parents after they're gone. And so the 20% or so people that are gonna have these fights, uh, just remember you're in a you're in a good group of people there's assets to go after and so uh, you know I guess there's that at the end of the day because most people will not inherit a whole lot they, they just simply are going to be able to do well based upon their own work and effort yeah that's right so I mean it's a it's kind of a good problem to have mm -hmm. is that what you're saying mm -hmm. it but is a good it's a good problem to have it's a frustrating problem to have. So. it is until you look at it from a relative standpoint and that is you, there's assets and most people don't have that opportunity and so you have an opportunity to to do this although i will say and we we just had a mediation this last week keith where uh some kids uh two children were uh, uh excluded from their dad's uh trust at the last minute within two days of him dying and for them they got a, a money settlement and it was a, it was a very significant money settlement uh, in the case uh and the money was just the proxy, as you call it. It was them now knowing that their dad didn't disinherit them right. and loved them all the way to the end. Right. And even though they had had a challenging relationship from time to time, they had a good relationship with their father. They loved their father. And so now they walk away with this with their heads held high, knowing that dad didn't intend to do this. Some bad actor came in and did some things they shouldn't have done. And so now I know I can rest at ease knowing that my father didn't do these things. And that's the heartbreaking part of these cases, that dad never intended this. Right. And yet that's what you're getting right. into. Right. I want to thank our uh, lovely paralegal, Kayla. Uh, say goodbye, Kayla. <laughs> <laughs> so she uh, works with all of our incoming clients. And uh, Stuart, you might be surprised to know that the last uh, probably half a dozen uh, new clients that came into the firm told me, they really enjoy working with Kayla. Well, I, I don't think they know Kayla well then. I, I think they need to get to know her a little better, better like we do. And then we've got Manisha, who is head of marketing here, and she's over here yelling at us and screaming, and she keeps us on task. So. And she's also uh, watching all the Facebook questions and making sure that we answer anything that comes in. And she put together all these other questions that were asked of us before we went live today. I want to let you know that you can find this broadcast live on Facebook and YouTube uh, every week where we do our live stream. You can also find a recorded version of this on Facebook and YouTube after the live recordings. They stay there forever and always. And you can always find an audio-only version of this live stream on our Stand, Fight, Win podcast, which you can find on Podbean or iTunes. I remembered it this time. Very good. Thank you for joining me, Stuart. Thank you, Keith. And we'll see you next time. See you next time.